0: This is being recorded uh, July 18th for Model Rail Radio at the New York Society of Model Engineers. This is Terry Terrence and Rich Martin. Rich Martin. So, uh, I'm going to open this with a couple of questions for you, Rich. I've been here before. I've been here in connection with the 2001 convention when you were on the tour. I didn't make it in 2006. And I noticed that uh, you've made a lot of changes since 2001. So, you're yes. keeping the layout up to date, which is... Uh, Which is good. Give me a little bit about the history of the layout. Uh, When was it built and by whom and how has it evolved over the years? Well, the uh, current
1: premises, uh, we were able to purchase uh, with the proceeds. We were in the Lackawanna Terminal, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe, somewhere from the mid-40s to the mid-50s. And with the amount of traffic that was down there, the amount of people that came through there, uh, they had extra long shows, a lot of admissions. And uh, when the Lackawanna asked the club to leave uh, we were able to buy this building and I believe we started construction in 1958. Uh, current members at the time who they were, I couldn't yeah. tell you. <laughs> I was only three at the time. So, uh, but, um, the railroad itself, um, the bench work, um, the, 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 the bottom two levels are basically unchanged, uh, except that it was outside third rail at yeah. the time. Um, and then through the years it's evolved into a third level and then into two rail, uh, Additional yards have been added. Uh, uh Erie Railroad's, Jersey City to Port Jervis. And those are the landmarks that we use uh, along the way. Okay,
0: very good. So. But it's, it's the Union Connecting the Railroad. Union Connecting Railroad. Railroad. Okay, yeah. which yeah. is going to lead into my next question. I notice there's a lot of equipment. It's dominated by Pennsylvania and New York Central and, and Erie and uh, Jersey Central. But I also saw an Olympian Hiawatha out there. You have a Rio Grande Streamliner running <laughs> around. Uh, uh, I see a lot of Norfolk and Western. Is the layout basically a uh, place where members can come and let their equipment stretch it their legs? That's
1: basically what it is. That's okay. uh, We don't actually even have room for club equipment at this point. <laughs> uh, we, have a, we have guys, and everybody has their favorite railroads. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania is big, of course, uh, Erie, Lackawanna. Uh, the Eastern Railroads, Jersey Central, of course. Yeah. You know, you can still see these stations still standing, and, it, and it, there's a lot of connection there. So, um, yeah. we do have a lot of guys uh, that favorite railroads. So, uh, and, and we like to intermingle things. A lot of clubs just say, well, let's say transition era, <laughs> or new, or old,
0: or whatever. Send it out. Let it run. Everybody enjoys it. Right. No. I know this, uh, you're running steel rail, which is not unusual in the O-scale community, but yes. people may be interested in uh, understanding why you stuck with steel. I think the biggest reason that it's been here for forever, and it just doesn't wear out.
1: Uh, I mean, it's remarkable um, that that rail has been in numerous locations and pulled up. It's been in New York. It's been in Hoboken. It's here. Um it just doesn't wear out, and uh, and it's real. It's you know you know when you're when you're in certain areas of the railroad and those trains go go by and a clickety clack you'd swear that you know if you, if you really if you close your eyes it would almost be like a real train going by. I think the realism factor, the wear factor, uh, just the tradition, the New York Society tradition.
0: That's well, I've, kind of big
2: here. Mm-hmm. I've
0: looked at the track work, and I mean, it's it's incredibly straight. The curves are uh, even radius throughout the whole the whole curve. It's it's really impressive track work. Yeah. Now, do you run DC or DCC or both? It's DC. It's all DC. all DC. Good old-fashioned blocks. as well It's all, systems, all
1: Yeah. Uh, just let me say one thing in, in, in uh, uh, sort of uh, praise of the track guys, and I'm a scenery guy, and I always boost the scenery we like to make a lot of changes and you know we, we always say you know well without us the railroad would just be a sea of plywood but i have to say that the most i think the most impressive thing in the building are the 27 double slips which is on the o-scale railroad when you look at how they're built and how they work and they've been working for decades already, it, it's just an unbelievable tribute to those that built them
0: yeah, um, yeah.
1: really remarkable so,
0: yeah it really is uh, I see you also have catenary over some parts of the, of yeah. the railroad. Is a it dysfunctional? dysfunctional? No, that's a display section. A display well, it was put section. in about two years ago because the, the railroad was
1: catenary at one point mm-hmm. in time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a nightmare to maintain. Um, mm-hmm. And I think they just gave up on it sometime around 1980 or 85, and they just took it all out. But we had a couple of guys here that like the catenary, and we put up a little display section.
0: Okay. Uh, just to kind of give it a little different flavor. Because you know? I remember seeing that in 2001. Yeah,
1: yeah in 2001, I believe the uh, the posts might have been up, but the wire wasn't there. And then actually the posts were out for a while, just for a little scenic right. variation, and then it all went back in about two years right. ago.
0: So. Now, now, you have a very, very impressive passenger terminal. Oh, yes, the passenger uh, Is there a, passenger. a history associated with the passenger terminal?
1: Yeah, well, that actually was uh, one of the first things I think that was designed into the railroad, um, the idea of uh, having, you know, very significant sort of passenger trains, you know, the uh, famous Phoebe, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Phoebe and any Phoebe. other, yeah, uh, same color sort of streamliners, and, and you know, I think that that was a key thing that they wanted—that that city hub uh, mm-hmm. and that and that station, the platforms, right, you know, which we really decorated up recently. With a lot of people, a lot of phone booths, and mm-hmm. we're always thinking of something to put out. You know, we, we just built the. Uh, uh, myself and another guy, we just scratch built a local Erie station, and one of the coolest things I think about it is that there's pigeons on the roof, uh, <laughs> and and the things that they've left behind is also yes. on the roof, too. So, uh, so <laughs> well, these you, are the things that we kind of get a kick out of. You but, can't uh, have you know, pigeons
0: without their uh, leavings. Well, you know, so, uh,
1: but yes, that's, uh, I think, one of
0: the uh, one of the key features that was designed with this railroad right from the start mm-hmm. was the big passenger terminal. Now, unfortunately, this is radio, so people can't see what I'm talking about, but the club also has a very impressive uh, collection of Railroadiana. Yes. Uh, a lot of tail signs. Are, are those actual tail signs from the yes, various
1: railroads? Uh,
0: we have, I think, about 34
1: or 35 of
0: them hanging up, and I
1: think the majority of them are authentic. If if not authentic, they are some connection to the railroad. Like we have a big square Jersey Central. Sign that was off of a ferry boat. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So close enough, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think we have about 18 or 19 authentic tail signs. Um, The rest of them are either station signs or some other, you know, similar sort of dealings. And we do have uh, some nice signals and lanterns, bells. We have a couple of bells. We actually have some things uh, hanging about. It's kind of hard to put up. We have a, a couple of tender. Lights from uh, steam locomotives—not mm-hmm. exactly the easiest thing in the world to hang, but we're we're working on it. Uh, the other thing is too is we have an absolutely world-class library, about 500 DVDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, place is, is is a real heaven for rail railroad and rail fan. All right. Yeah.
0: let me loop back to the steel rail for just a moment because mm-hmm. I I had a question I forgot to ask it while we were there. How is the steel rail for, is it a maintenance headache, or do you just run enough trains every week that it, it's not an issue? I think we run enough, um, mm-hmm. and we also, we take care of stuff. That's the
1: great thing about this organization, I think, especially on the O-Scale side, is that we have track guys, electric guys. Uh, we have maintenance guys, scenery guys, and everybody pitches in to, to make a, a really well-rounded railroad. Mm-hmm. There's always trains running. We have one of the guys is always running the, you know, the cleaning train around. Uh, if you get it a little bit oily, just enough, mm-hmm. and it'll, it'll keep, not mm-hmm. a problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Very good, very good. So is there anything I've missed about that you'd like people to know, and we'll get around to it at the end? You can give the address and the pitch for new members. Well, I think that's
1: uh, that actually is probably what, uh, you know, more, maybe more. It's definitely a place... That you would want to come and see and spend a couple of hours. In. Uh, guys are knowledgeable. Any you know any railroad you want to talk about, we have a guy here that knows about it. It's it's uh, it's it's a place where we'd like to keep you know model railroading and railroad history alive, and we'd like to spread that to as many people as we can. I think that's the mission. Hey. <laughs> so of
0: course. <laughs> now, of course this is this is the New York City area. What would it be without a siren going by outside? So, Rich, I know what the address is, but it's probably better people hearing it coming from you. What's the yes, address of the New York uh, Society Model Engineers? Yes,
1: it's 341 Hoboken Road in Carlstadt, New Jersey, right off of Route 17, uh, probably a mile away from Giant Stadium. If you know where Giant Stadium is, we're right
0: around the corner. And we've talked about the O-Scale Railroad, but there's also an HO Railroad on the other side of the yes. room. So yes. for people so inclined for the small scale... And I also noticed that they're quite a bit younger than us graybeards on the O-Scale <laughs> side. So uh, for people who are interested in the smaller scale, that's here too. Yes, the DCC Railroad, uh, nice size, big mainline run. And I think you have work sessions on Wednesday nights if Wednesdays, people want to come yeah, by. Uh, Those are
1: open from about 6, 6.30 on Wednesday night. Anybody can come down. And even Saturday afternoon, there's guys in the building. So, so rich. What are new members in for, uh, slave labor, press gangs? Oh, not at all, no. Uh, <laughs> we actually try to make the new members uh, feel at home. Uh, the uh, I think the, the sort of procedure that we try to follow is a uh, prospective member, and we just encourage them to come down, spend as much time as they can on a Wednesday, circulate, talk to people, uh, get to know, we get to know you, you get to know us, uh, and the sirens outside.
0: And the sirens outside, right, us, of course. <laughs> You know, I, I grew up in the New York area, so I hardly even notice them anymore. <laughs> and then, uh, then
1: they step up to what's called a probation. I remember where they actually get all the privileges of full membership, mm-hmm. except for voting rights. And we just encourage people to do what they what they are interested in, what comes naturally. And do you um, mentor people? Yes, in, absolutely. In the various skills. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, in particular, I. I think me and another couple of guys. I think we are sort of the vultures of New York, the New York society. Is that if we see somebody floating around a little bit aimlessly, we kind of take them under our wing and turn them into scenery geeks. (laughs) So we have more scenery people here than we know what to do with because that's that's all we do. But uh, we don't want to see anybody go out the door. We do try to help uh, you know direct people into. And you probably um, need electrical guys, no? Uh, electrical guys. Yeah, we, you know, whoever's looking, it's amazing. Even people that are coming in through the door, they're interested mm-hmm. in different things. And we, we definitely have people and we hook them up with them, you know, can, can get them going.
0: Okay, so. very good. Well, this is an unusual a club in the New York metro area, which doesn't have a whole lot of clubs. There are a few scattered around here and there. Bay Ridge and, and this one are two of the all-scale ones I know of. But uh, this has O-scale, H-O, and uh, if you're in the New York area, give it a shot. Thank you very much, Rich. You're welcome. Right. I have uh, David Schneider with me, who's the uh, president and all other functions of Schneider Model Railroading. And Dave is a historian, and he's an advocate for 19th century railroading. So, Dave, tell us about 19th century railroading.
3: Well, let me tell you a little bit about how I got started in all of this. It's, it's kind of a passion. Uh, my company, SMR, is a uh, leading 19th century modeling company, in the, in the, probably in the world. And uh, I got started in it because it's a, a passion. That's how a lot of companies get started. You have a person who has a passion, and ever since I was a very young person, I had pictures of old time trains in my room, and I started out with a model train set bought to me, bought for me by my dad, uh, in the mid 1950s. And uh, my second locomotive of this uh, train set was one of these uh, 1959 General sets, and that became my my favorite. So when uh, In the strange changes of life that occur, I got to the point where I decided I ought to go into the model railroading business. It seemed natural that I should do something in the 19th century. The uh, idea of modeling the 19th century is kind of an outgrowth of the famous movie where they say, if you build it, they will come. Uh, Every major model-making company, at one point in their career, produces at least one old-time train, but nobody ever specialized in it, and the excuse always was that, well, people really aren't interested, but then when you talk to people, they would say, well, nobody makes anything, so it was a, what came first, the chicken or the egg, and I simply decided that I would force the issue by actually making things, and that's what I did, and uh, we started this company, my brother and I initially started this company nine years ago, and we produced the first model was the General, which, of course, is the most famous of the old-time trains. But our General is completely different and unique from anyone else's because, being a professional historian, I went to the effort of making sure that we produced our General in its appearance of the time of the Civil War. The General had a long career afterwards, which included multiple rebuilds, a major collision, uh, getting blown up at one point. And so, as it appears now today in the movies or in the, uh, in the museum itself that it's in in Kennesaw, Georgia, it actually looks nothing at all like it, the way it really did. In fact, when I visited the museum there and I said to them, well, what is original on the General? They said, well, we think the drivers are still original. And that's it. So our model we decided to make would be as close to possible as how it rolled out of the factory of the Rogers Locomotive Works in Patterson, New Jersey in 1855. And that launched us on our career in making 19th century locomotives. Today, nine years later, I'm on the verge of releasing my 14th and 15th locomotive models uh, we, produce, we produced locomotives, we produced uh, rolling stock, uh, box cars, flat cars, ore cars, an interesting combine caboose that ran on the Virginian Truckee, uh, large passenger cars that, that ran on the Pennsylvania Railroad in the late 1870s and early 1880s. And we continue to have uh, plans for more engines, more cars, and uh, stretching out into uh, 2014 were
0: chugging ahead, as you'd say, in the train business. You gave a uh, clinic here, and you went through several advantages to 19th century railroading. Shorter cars, and it was I found it very fascinating uh, because you brought up some things I hadn't considered, like the crudeness of the freight cars versus the polish of the passenger cars. So, would you elaborate on some of that? Sure. One of the advantages
3: of modeling the uh, 19th century, especially if you decide to do Civil War era and such, which is a a lot of interest to people because this is the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. Most people don't realize, well first of all locomotives remind me very much of like the evolution of dinosaurs. They start out really small, the little creatures that crawled out of the ocean and they grow up to be these enormous brontosauruses and stuff as these big boys and such go. But the engines back then were pretty early in the evolution and so they're relatively small. A typical O scale correct proportioned locomotive for eighteen sixties is only about twelve or thirteen inches long. And the box cars and freight cars are typically twenty five to thirty five feet in length. And because these engines don't have a lot of traction, the trains are shorter. A typical passenger train was two or three cars. A typical freight train would be maybe ten cars long, and speeds were slow crack passenger train would run 40 miles an hour in some places. A typical freight speed would be 10 to 15 miles an hour. So they moved around relatively slowly with very short trains. And this is, can be an advantage to hobbyists because... They also were designed to take much tighter curves, and one of the problems of building a home layout is the fact that you need a lot of room for big sweeping curves, or these great big, big boys, or these multi-unit diesels pulling, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 cars, and you don 't need that with nineteenth century railroading you can your curves aren't much bigger than h o curves h o curves you got eighteen inch 20 inch twenty four inch curves in h o well guess what my uh, a typical l four four o is perfectly happy on a twenty four inch curve or thirty inch curve so you really only need about the same space as an h o layout to have an O scale layout and although the trains are not uh, uh, easy to find. They're not in, in great quantities. The prices are not what you'd call cool. A bargain basement, you'd need a lot less of them. You don't need a roster of 20 or 30 locomotives and 150 cars. You need 3 or 4 locomotives and 30 cars, 20 cars, 15 cars. So, you can, for a lesser investment, get a full-scale empire going. And, Again, even further, your track work is much more simple. They're just plain old ties. Throw down on the dirt with a bunch of spikes, no spike plates. Just hammer these things in and run the train. And a single track main line is typical, not bizarre. So, you know, you gotta watch out for those cornfield meats, but at the same time, you can make a simplified track system. So, if you want to have an O scale layout in your house and you don't have a ballroom size building, you can do it with O scale. Some of the other thing the advantages of of the nineteenth century is its sheer colorfulness and its beauty. To me, now, this is a personal opinion, of course, and I don't want to offend anybody who's passionate about the 1950s railroading or something like that, is that that's a dying era. That's an era where the dinosaurs, the great big black behemoths, are are all dying and getting replaced by these boxes on wheels called diesels. And they're all dirty and they're filthy. And the railroads that run through the cities are always running through the slum areas. and, And everything looks beat up and weathered and all that. Well, in the 19th century the engines were the 747s of the day. They were the highest technology. Railroads were proud of them. They had people that they hired every morning called engine wipers who would go in there and polish the brass every morning and every stop the engineer would get off and clean off and the firemen would clean off all the dust and the dirt so that they would sparkle. And so you have incredibly colorful engines lovingly maintained. And the passenger cars well, we call passenger cars varnish today. Well, the reason they were called varnish is because they were made out of wood, and they used to have incredibly multiple coats of varnish. They would be done in in beautiful, rich colors of paint, or they would be actually stained and varnished with seven coats of varnish, hand rubbed and stuff like that. and you'd go inside and they would have plush seating and carpeting and 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 chandeliers hanging down these These cars were incredible works of art because they were prestigious. The railroad was showing off its value to its people. But you know what's also interesting, though, the rolling stock itself, the the freight cars and stuff, were exactly the opposite. They were beat up because they were incredibly cheap. A locomotive in in, in the 1860s might cost $15,000. A boxcar in the 1860s would cost no more than $300. And they were built cheaply out of wood, they got bashed up, banged up, had really short life expectancies, and so they got tossed aside very quickly. They were almost disposable. You ran them for a year or two and threw into the trash with them. So you have that dichotomy of gorgeous polished locomotives pulling uh, a bunch of beat-up cars behind in a freight train. It's it's kind of a funny look. But another thing you can do that I didn't talk too much about previously is the... Is the uh, uh, terrain also, as well, the uh, scenicing you can do. If you do a town scene, okay, you do an industrial scene or something like that to run your trains by, well, these factories are new. They've just been built. They're not filthy, grimy brick buildings. They're shiny new brick brick buildings and if you go through a town and where the train station and it's not the oldest part of town the beat-up part of town it's the newest part of town with the best hotels and the, and the nicest streets and the cobblestones and the trees and all that so it's prestigious if you do the countryside you're, you're not going through you know industrial wastelands and stuff you're going through farm rolling farmlands and things If you do the wild west you've got You've got beautiful scenery. You don't have strip mines or anything like that. You've got the Great Plains. You can put an Indian tribe sitting up there, you know, if you wanted to. You can have, you know, the rolling prairie that it's going across. If you do something like, say, the... Uh, uh, transcontinental railroad, or if you do want to do mines and such, there's an enormous amount of interesting layouts you could do. You could do something like the famous Virginian Truckee Railroad, which ran in Nevada. And that, that serviced the, it was a very twisty attorney railroad, and it serviced the silver mines of the Comstock load, but it also interconnected to help service them to At one end, there was an interconnection with a narrow gauge railroad, and at the other end, there was an interconnection with the Central Pacific, and thus the Transcontinental railroads—you could have all kinds of interesting uh, uh, situations—and where you do have the interconnections and stuff, where you do have yards, they're much more simplified compared to modern yards. The equipment is simpler, the layout, the track is simpler, the space you need is smaller. So, all in all, if you don't have already over your head commitment in a in a field or a period or something like that, and you want to bring something. Uh, attractive into your house, a 19th century railroad might just be the ticket. Just as an aside, I've noticed that train wives tend to like my trains better too. They always look at it. They come by, yes, they come by and they say to their husband, look at that beautiful locomotive. Not instead of, are you going to buy another one of those black things? They all look
0: alike. (laughs) (laughs) Now you have a... you for your production, you put a hard cutoff at 1900, so you're strictly 19th century. Yet, as you pointed out in the clinic, by 1880, 1890, and you've produced models in that era, you're getting something that looks pretty much like big-time railroading. The locomotives are a little larger, the cars are a little larger, traffic density is heavier, so If you have a yen for something more than a uh, branch line, you can do that too and still be 19th century.
3: Absolutely. I'd, you know, to get away from plugging my own models, if you wanted to do later uh, 19th century, there are uh, two real versions of models put out by MTH of the Pennsylvania H3 consolidation. Uh, you've had them produce a uh, 999 for the uh, New York Central. You've got a. Uh, they did a D16 as well, which is a 1890s design, 440 Pennsylvania. You could actually get. Three different types of Pennsylvania engines, and if you decide to use consolidations, you can just change the numbers on them, and you can run several consolidations to run your freight, and you can have a couple of high-speed passenger trains, and actually have a pr- fairly exten- extensive and somewhat modern-looking railroad. Uh, you know, it's just a little bit, still a little bit smaller. The cars are still shorter. Uh, you're going to get into the to the point where you're getting to 36-foot box cars. You know, but you're not doing 40s and 48s and things like that. There's no auto carriers. There's no, you know, multiple level stackers with the, you know, with containers and such on them. And but you are having billboard box cars showing uh, starting to show up, and you've got colors, and you've got all that other things. You have the early refrigerator ice cars, and it means you have to have ice loading stations and things like that. And you can be hauling uh, uh, loads of citrus up from Florida going to New York or something like that, or meat from Chicago going to different places. This is the the great era of of, of freight, and uh, the passenger period also is very very. Colorful. This is the the end of the uh, the wood car era, and uh, uh, the trains are actually reaching probably their their maximum luxurious period with the most overstuffed chairs and the and the most fancy train stations. the The greatest uh, of the cathedrals of the rail that they have built, the Grand Central stations, the Pennsylvania Station, they were all built prior to World War One. By that time, they've already been built. This is this is that era. And so it's extraordinarily uh, grand, and you can build
0: some very, very spectacular-looking uh, layouts in that style. Well, let's talk about the track structure, bridges, and such like that also need to be there to complete a 19th century railroad. And I know this was a, uh, a topic on our uh, Model Rail Radio Forum recently with stub switches stub switches and let's segue into you know the types of bridges you might want to consider
3: stub switches of course were the norm and did not become uh... uh, obsolescent and start seeing replacement until about the 1880s and a stub switch for those of you are not familiar with the style it does not have points that, that sort of smoothly glide into the switch. They have simply the end of the rail is the end of the rail. And you move a step switch by literally using gorilla power to bend the rail into alignment with the new track. And the result is is a rather rough connection. And so when trains would go over switches, they had to go over them much slower. Uh, that was the advantage of point switches was a much smoother switch. Uh, making a stub switch is not that difficult. It's actually, in my mind, easier if you're going to hand make yours. My company actually has a line of number six stub switches that are available, but um, it's not that hard to do. And you can have three ways, you can have Y's, you can have cross. So stubs did everything that everything else that every other kind of switch was. It was just a different style and how it was done. On the bridges themselves. Um, you have an incredibly wide range of bridge bridging. Uh, in the early days, uh, probably there were only two kinds of bridges, some sort of a wood structure and some sort of a stone arch structure. Think in terms of like the, the Thomas viaduct uh, over the, Ohio uh, yes. right, the Baltimore and Ohio, that which is still in use today, uh, was built in the 1830s and uh, was incredibly durable and it is almost a Roman aqueduct style of a, of a thing and it's made out of stone and it will it will survive the American civilization I think but uh, other bridges they had was all sorts of truss structures. The trusses were sometimes all wood, sometimes they were wood and iron, sometimes there was experiments in all iron. Uh, there's an enormous uh, range of, of scratch building that can be done on those uh, trusses. Uh, likewise, though, very popular were trestles and the classic type of trestles, those long spindly types that you see uh, today. You could buy the trestle kits, though especially the ones that are geared toward the narrow gauge uh, uh, market, would work perfectly well for a 19th century market because they were not that heavy Uh, really serious thick wood trusses that you see in the uh, more class A type engine, you know, railroads of, say, the 1920s or 30s. These things were tall and spindly, and they look spectacular, too. There's nothing like a a wood trestle for attractiveness.
0: Yeah, I think Bowman trusses were very popular back in that period of time, and that would be a very interesting structure to build. So let me ask you a wrap-up question. You think everyone should be a 19th century railroader. Oh, of course I do. (laughs) I mean, that's the nature
3: of a passion. When you have a passion, you think that your passion is, is is the best passion. After all, it's yours. I mean, it's just like when I'm talking to somebody who happens to be, say, passionate about the nickel plate uh, transitional period, you know, and he's talking about all of those things, or somebody who is a late Penzi guy or a New York Central guy. It's always a matter of passion. Why do I think the 19th century is best, though? I think it really, really its strongest appeal is towards the home railroad layout. It's the idea that you can do something that is taking up less space, is going to be colorful, will be attractive. The visitors will all ooh and ah. Everybody loves to go to Disney World and see the locomotives. There is a fascination among the average American and among the secret, the, the secret thinkings of the worst of the, of the, of the dirty engine people that somehow there is something glorious, something exciting, something utterly American about the early days of railroading. And that's its attraction.
0: Very good. Thank you very much, Dave. So I have with me here Brian Scase, who's a former editor of O-Scale Trains magazine and an O-Scaler. And he gave a clinic on layout design elements. And uh, I'd like to turn it over to Brian right now. So we can tell us about his concepts for uh, layouts in small spaces,
4: Brian. Basically, what this, uh, uh, what the driver of all this is, is the fact that O scale trains being larger, there's some things that you're going to think about with respect to putting them in the spaces that are that are the average spaces that, of course, are the same ones that are enjoyed by the HO and the N scale craft. One of the things that that makes life a little difficult when you get into the larger scales is the inability relatively quickly to turn a track around on itself, the classic Armstrongian blob, we have to think in terms of some sort of a design that can um, assuage the operator gene that doesn't necessarily involve the blob, which is something that most, for instance, hidden staging almost requires as a form. So rather than looking at... The uh, the Frank Ellison theater model of design where you have the wings of the theater being the hidden staging and then, of course, you've got the stage itself, which is where all the sex and violence happens in an operating session. Uh, what we're doing instead is we're thinking more in terms of system engineering or, you know, f- for the younger folks, for instance, the notion of of a computer network where you have a server and a series of clients, for instance, which is sort of a basic notion in almost all kinds of system engineering. In this this method, which will fit in a space that's quite a bit less than what you would require for traditional linear design, um, you have that same stage area that you might have had in a linear design, say like a division point yard except that's now going to be the car supply, or the server, if you will, that will feed what we call destination nodes, which represent the clients. And these are various industrial areas, or mine heads, or you port side seams, or or those sorts of things. And the important thing then is that you now have a car source being that division point yard, as for instance. And that's just an example, by the way. And you have that amount of traffic that can be generated that is actually going to support the switching that's going to happen at each of these discrete clients, these destination nodes, or these industrial areas. And there's really only two rules to this to be successful. And the first is, at least initially, you want that central node, the server, to have the capacity to feed however many destinations clients that you happen to string to it. And the other one is, again, at least initially, until you sort of get used to the notion, is that the the destinations are best designed as a discrete single seat switcher onto itself, the, the classic switching puzzle, where you've got a you know a, a passing siding, you've got the doors where the pickups are standing and you've got a string of cards that are the, the, that would are going to be the set outs uh, what expands this those from just single scene switchers is taking several of them, spoking them around a central note of car source that now is that inbound traffic that makes those set outs for each crew at each destination um, but the short of it is that uh Without really going off stage to restage and having to build the trackage that would accommodate that, which is in this scale quite a, quite a space eater, you, you no longer need that because your car source is now on stage. And the other the other thing that happens then is, for instance, in each of those destinations, you can have one crew for really, you know, know, when we talk about the really neurotic levels of prototype operation, you can have a crew with switch lists at each of those uh, destinations, and you can also have one that's actually uh, dictating the pace of the operating session that's operating in central mode, the server. And you can do this all in a space, uh, for instance, the last one I built was uh, one central node, two destination nodes, so three full crews, Two hours, uh, between seventy-five and eighty cars moved, um, and it, that's basically in the space it's occupied of half of an average American post-war cape, which that nominal dimension usually is something like about twenty-five feet versus about forty. that's sort of the that, that's that's really is the short of it from the operator or the you know you know the, from the person that's got sort of the employee side of the of, of the
5: employee,
0: railfan, rather. So the key is that you have this central node, which could be a division point yard. It could be one or more interchanges with another railroad, one or more car floats. So it's a place where you expect cars to originate or to terminate at the end of the operating session. Yeah. And your destination nodes are set up as single-scene switchers. Mm -hmm. They're connected typically to the central node by single track.
4: If you like, like. the number of tracks really is immaterial, and the form is really immaterial. What we're really focusing on here is Is function, function, not
0: form. I'm just trying to
4: clarify.
0: So now these, these destination nodes can either be radially from the center, linearly strung out, or any topology in between. They're connected back to the central node, which gives you the advantage of being able to squirrel away the destination nodes wherever you have
4: the space. It's very flexible that way.
0: And I think that's the key for fitting it into the available space, regardless of scale. Yes. So the idea is scale independent. Uh, you have the central node, which probably takes up your largest space. And then you have the destination nodes, which are squirreled away wherever you can put them.
4: And the uh, one other little bit of flexibility you get with this is once the design is done and it's built and it's been operated and um, you've gone through as many different permutations of an operation of a form like this, first off, you are you're, you're, you're spend a lot of time trying to explore all the flexibilities about this because that flexibility is at least as good as in a linear design. What you're representing is now not the mainline traffic that's going from division point to division point to division point, but you're representing now the terminal functions that come from that division point, which is why it's there in the first place, right. uh, going to the actually to the individual customers. If you've explored it all or you find you've made a mistake or there's something that you'd like to totally rebuild and revisit in a matter of form, you can turn around and just knock off one of the destination nodes and completely rebuild it. But the rest of the railroad will still run. And it'll still operate. So it's not like you're, you're down for the count while you're rebuilding a section of the railroad. The other thing is that, you know, especially with people that right now find themselves living in smaller quarters, they're early on in a career, their time is valuable. You can build a single scene switcher now. You can build another single scene switcher maybe a little bit later. Once you get to the point in life where things start to relax a little bit and you're in bigger quarters, you can take those single scene switches that you've built and actually build a central node. And just since you've already got these things and you've been dragging them along the moving van, you can string them together at that point. So this is this is this actually is, is, is a way that in the modern lifestyle you still can enjoy a lifelong uh, model railroad building project rather than uh, just wait until you're retired, and then at that point, you really have to be somewhat uh, callous about the notion about how much time do I have left to invest in building this great whacking railroad that I've been dreaming about for the last 40 years. Yeah. So there's
0: there's a good option there. And just to circle back to your observation about whacking off a node and rebuilding it, uh, the flip side of that is you get John Armstrong's early operation as soon as you have your first single-scene switcher, you have something to do. And you gradually build up single-scene switchers, adding the central node when appropriate, and you're never essentially in a time when you don't have oper- an operating railroad.
4: Even in the initial building, or in the rebuilding, or in the entire lifespan of the project, it doesn't have to end, right. just because your circumstances change. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Certainly in this day and age, that's, that's, that's an advantage. Um, the days of somebody getting into a career very early in the same house and staying with that, that career for 40 years for most people are over.
0: Yeah. And you made an observation during the clinic that this lends itself to modular, uh, form if we get away from function for a moment, it lends itself to the modular form where each single scene switcher as well as potentially the central node is a module. Yes. Uh, Yes. Again, easy to transport, easy to build, could be stood even on end when it's not in use, so... Uh, And the configurations can vary
4: depending on what the spaces are that you happen to be assigned for the weekend, and whatever hall it is that you might be building this, you know, that your modular club is is occupying at the time. Uh, So the configurations really aren't dictated. If you're thinking more in terms of function, the only thing really is dictate that dictates the form is the form of that trackage in between each of those each of those elements. yeah.
0: right. So I mean the flexibility in operation operation theme construction storage even uh if you if you if you can get away from mainline running uh this is this is a very flexible solution and unfortunately because this is radio we can't show the diagrams that, that Brian put up during the clinic but in your first incarnation of this concept you even incorporated mainline running you want to say something about that
4: well, in O, there's uh, there's a sort of traditional, okay, I don't have room for a very complex form, so because I don't, my room's limited, one build tends to build like the double track mainline on the plywood type thing to run whatever it is that one builds. And one of the things about O2 is that a good majority of the people that are in it are model builders, so they're more like railway modelers versus model railroaders. Uh, they're model engineers. They will, but when they've done building that model, they'd like to see the thing run, and so that sort of lends yourself over to the to the rail fan side of that employee versus railfan druther, In that, um, you want to be you want to sit in a comfy chair and watch their models glide by. And for myself personally, I like doing that. I like both. And I find my stake is driven just about in the middle in between those two extremes. So I always put a continuous running option in anything I build that I'm building for myself, certainly. And, um, in the last iteration of this that, that I did, uh, those, that loop was disguised scenically, but still functionally, it was that traditional double-track main around the basement walls. Mm -hmm. We just went to great lengths to hide the fact that it was. Mm -hmm. And that actually didn't even interchange with the nodal operation at any point. It was totally independent. It was part of the scenery. And that certainly is a viable option. if, If being able to just sit and not be a participant but be an observer is important to you, and if you're a model builder and you want to run your stuff in that form, well, design it in without shame. You know, yeah. you know flaunt it. Uh, and it's very easy to interweave between the two. Yeah, the uh,
0: the employee versus railfan given and druthers, Brian's referring to as an extension of John Armstrong's system of given and druthers where he asked the question, are you an employee or operator, if you will, or a rail fan who just wants to see the trains roll by. And, uh, so Brian has sort of added that to Armstrong's choices of how to define your railroad. And the, the nodal system, the, uh, serves the purposes of the employee. Whereas the continuous and running serves the purpose of the rail fan. As Brian said, his last railroad incorporated both with no interchange. And in a fairly modest space for for O scale.
4: Yeah, it was uh, that space was uh, thirty eight by thirteen feet. Anytime I've ever handed somebody some uh, that, that Givens and Druthers exercise went up and doing layout design for other people. I have yet to run across somebody that draws a stake firmly on one extreme or the other. It's a sliding scale. They're invariably in between somewhere. They they you know, there are times and and I'm the same way. There's times where I've got a half an hour before bed, I'm going to go run some trains and have a drink. And then there's times where there's going to be a Saturday afternoon operating session and we'll get very neurotic about the operation side, the employee side of this thing. I enjoy both. And so I design for both. Mm -hmm. The the whole thing really boils down to no matter uh, what form the layout might take, what the spaces are, the constraints, which are the givens, and uh, what the preferences are, the druthers, a careful look at this uh, and whatever the conclusions are you draw from that, are really key to somebody embarking on a project that's going to please them once it's up in operation and approaching completion. And if you're going to build a railroad that doesn't please you, you're wasting your time. So that, you know, you know this, is, this is not, the nodal thing is not really something that's presented as a matter of holy writ, it's just another option, along with linear, single scene, or any of the other forms that that people are using commonly to design a model railway that satisfies them.
0: Very good. Now, uh, here's an interesting question. You've recently changed your model railroad interests from 148th American-style O to 7mm O. And uh, unfortunately, I had to miss Brian's clinic on... 7mm, so I'm going to ask him now to fill me in.
4: Why? Ah, uh, why? Well, I've been building the same thing and modeling the same area in the same gauge for like 45 years. And there does come a point, especially when you're running into that, uh, those walls that are 13 feet apart by 38 feet long, but you've built enough stuff and you're literally running around, running out of room. Again, I'm a builder, um, as well as an operator. You know, after 45 years of the same thing, it was time for change. And, okay, I admit it might be a little extreme, but a change was due, so a change was that. And it, it's been great fun because, uh, in many ways I'm a novice again. And there's all sorts of stuff out there to be built. And, all sorts of uh, techniques to be uh, you know, at least revisited or rediscovered that I haven't exercised in years. Now, the choice why British British? O rather than, say, just changing prototypes is uh, purely personal. I lived there for a while and have run about in that circuit. As a matter of fact, a lot of the uh, layout design concepts that I use come from what I've seen and experienced there. So it's a, it's perhaps maybe a confusing mingle of the two, but it's, so far it seems to work well. And it actually was a near, near run thing. I almost went to a 42 inch Empire gauge South African, which people really would have been questioning my, uh, my sanity at that point. But, uh, again, you know, the stuff I'm building, I'm building it for me. It sounds very self-centered, but I am. And, If I was to recommend, if there's anything to learn out of this, uh, this whole interview, is my recommendation for whatever it's worth is don't worry so much what everybody else tells you to build. Build what you want for yourself. And that's where the staying power really is going to be.
0: Now, you, you hinted earlier in the week at several advantages to seven millimeter O, like shorter, shorter cars and such like. Have, has that been proven out? In fact, I mean, how long are how far along are you on building your layout? The new layout.
4: A good deal of the track works in; it's operating. Most of the trains that are the elements of the operating uh, system itself are at least uh, under construction, if not completed. One of the advantages I've found is that there's, um, and this is again, a, is by personal preference. There's lots of modern-made-by-modern-method-and-modern-engineering kits that are out there. So there's plenty to do from the workbench to the benchwork. As far as uh, what the what uh, changes, at least in the mindset of operation, are they're, they're really? Other than you've got to go and, and, and look at uh, British practice, and, and it also helps if you're bilingual when you're reading the instructions on the kits when somebody says to... Uh, you know, fret the bits off and then offer the W irons to the soul bars to actually not look at this and wonder what does this mean.
0: <laughs> Remember, it is their language.
4: Uh, yeah, yeah, and it is, a, it's, it's, uh, uh, there's of course a few snappy sayings I won't particularly get into about that, but, uh, the actual operating algorithms are not all that different. And the, the notion of, uh, of a car load as, as an operating entity is, is, is obviously the same. Most of the people that come visit, we have a very active community where I live. You know, when it comes to my turn to host on a Friday night, uh, we generally have a full house because first off, it's, it's a little bit different, but second off, it's, it's not so radically different as to be totally unfamiliar and bizarre or scare people off at all. Um, so it's all worked out very well.
0: As a model builder, since you identified yourself as a model builder, how are you finding supply? Is everything, like, put in an order and wait weeks, or have you found local supply, at least on this continent, maybe up in Canada?
4: I've done my best actually getting it from the U.K. Um, in this day and age now, we've got the Internet, we've got email, that stuff like that, so p- placing orders is easy. The shipping, now, you know, I'm, it's between five and ten business days, I've got it in hand. So, the notion of international communication for shopping and then international shipping is a lot better now than last time i was last time i was i was deeply into this doing some modular stuff uh probably about fifteen years ago where you were writing the letter and sending the bank draft and that sort of stuff okay. like so things have <laughs> speeded up quite a bit as far as far as the actual getting supplies. The availability of supplies is amazing you know I can get just about any driver and any wheel from Slater's that yes. you would ever possibly me- need. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interface between the wheels and the models and the bearings, for instance, are all standardized. Gearboxes, motors are uh, that are that are ready to use are relatively easy to come by. Certainly easier than in uh, USO. Uh, a couple good ranges of track work, running from ready to you know, you know flex track and, and and ready to use to, uh, points versus. All the way up to buying all the, you know, the the chairs, chairs and the chair, yeah. everything like yeah, that, chair, right and, and actually hand laying. Yes. there's ranges for that run the gamut through that. Um, so the availability is actually uh, is actually quite nice, and the other thing that's nice is that the what is available is usually engineered to a relatively modern standard. So it's so that you know these things actually for the most part, fit together rather than breaking out the the forge and the sledgehammer and, and dimming the lights in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, there's some differences. There's a lot. that's the same. And uh, so far, it's all been great fun.
0: Do you have any specific prototype, or are you mixing and
4: matching? Uh, no, it's actually pretty specific. It's uh, um, at least a... Uh, uh, it's not board by board by any means, but the uh, uh, the focus is the uh, loop lines and, and the main lines coming into uh, Edinburgh Waverley, up in Scotland. So, mm-hmm. so it's LMS and LMS. Mm-hmm.
0: Very good. Well, Brian, I know you're pressed for time to get to your next clinic, so I think
4: we'll wrap it up here. Yes, yeah, it's just time to sing and dance again. Yes, and thanks
0: for uh, speaking to us today. You're welcome. Uh, I have with me here Dave Vaughn, whose layout I've operated on uh, several times, and Dave's layout incorporates portions of three previous layouts, including portions of John Armstrong's layout. So Dave is here to talk about the whys and the wherefores and the rewards and pitfalls of incorporating heritage layouts into your own layout. So Dave, take it away.
2: Well, thank you, Terry. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, the Washington D.C. area has been, has been richly blessed over the years, uh, with, uh, leading, uh, O-scalers, uh, including John Armstrong and Ted Stepick. We've operated a round-robin club. And, uh, there came a time, uh, when, uh, Ted Stepick, uh, passed away. There came a time later in 2004 when John Armstrong passed away. Uh, a fellow named Ed Rappé had a wonderful uh, O-scale layout uh, that was a cover layout in model railroader. And I think April of 2000, he retired to Williamsburg and uh, decided to build a new layout rather than take the layout that he had with him. Uh, and I knew these fellows. I operated their layouts. Uh, the layouts were built with a wonderful degree of craftsmanship with hand-laid track and uh steel rail and mended and super elevated curves and, and generally uh, levels of, of uh, detail and workmanship that are hard to come by now. And I knew these fellows separately and I wanted to try and preserve what they had done uh, for what they had done and for the for the modeling enjoyment that they had given to the uh, members of the Friday night group. And so I sort of backed into uh, preserving what I call heritage layouts. Uh, These are layouts that were built at some time uh, in the past, were built to fit into a particular uh, room, were built to operate in a particular way, but the owners have uh, gone on to the great model railroad in the sky. Except Uh, for Ed, he's still with us. Except for Ed, that's right. We We shouldn't consign Ed to that. Uh, He's gone on to build a great super layout, and it's not in the sky. But in any event, I made the decision, starting with Ted Ted Stepik's layout after he passed away in 1996, to try and preserve uh, the layouts. And they had never been designed to be moved. Uh, They were not modular in any way. Uh, And like a lot of us, uh, they built their railroads uh, like they were going to live forever, uh, and wh- after I made the determination and made arrangements with, uh, with Ted's widow, eventually, and after some delay and trepidation, uh, I got a, uh, a sawzall, a reciprocating saw with a combination metal cutting blade, and I figured out, uh, how big the pieces could be to get them out of the existing basement and into the new, uh, home that they were gonna fit in. Uh, I figured out how I could make the cuts with a minimum of damage to the track work and the bench work and the wiring and so on uh, and the scenery, uh, and I cut them into sections, put in temporary legs, uh, made arrangements to get uh, access to a truck and a couple of helpers, and we moved the layout uh, out of its then location and eventually after a couple of moves and storage uh,
0: locations uh, that i had to deal with uh, into their present home dave is being modest here because yesterday he gave a uh, clinic on this whole process and he's he's making it sound a whole lot easier than it was in real life for instance finding out how to cut apart layout without doing major damage with a sawzall was apparently uh something you had to develop by trial and error it was it was and and uh, they, they say that we uh Acquire,
2: uh, wisdom, uh, through, and the ability to make good decisions through experience. And we acquire experience by making bad decisions. So I certainly ended up making, uh, some, some decisions that I would not visit on, on anybody else. And, uh, th- you know, it is the basic adages. It's, you know, measure twice, uh, cut once. It's, uh, try and figure out where the layout needs to wind up, uh, before you start taking it apart, uh, trying to figure out what of a layout Deserve saving. Not every part of even even good layouts deserve saving. The John Armstrong layout was a case in point. Uh, there are large parts of it that simply did not fit uh, into a new location, and because of the way they had been constructed, would have been almost impossible to uh, uh, to remove and reuse. So I, I made some. Uh, uh, cut my much. losses, kind of decisions, and, uh, and and left a significant part of it. But I got the major pieces, the major views that that people will remember about the layout and the major parts that would be operated on.
0: So you have parts of John Armstrong's layouts, Ted Steepax layouts, and uh, Edward Pay's layouts. I think yes. most people know John Armstrong's layout and would you describe the parts of that layout that you have? Sure.
2: For those who are familiar, uh, he had a, uh, a single uh, major uh, town in his layout, uh, uh and that uh, had uh, a an engine terminal, uh, a freight yard, and a passenger uh, terminal. Uh, he had another... Um, long section of track that most people would associate uh, most directly with the layout, uh, which is, uh, I always call it photographer's curve. It was a cosmetic, I think it was a 110-foot radius, along the banks of a river. I think it was called Slug Island uh, was the actual location on the track plan. And then there were some very distinctive uh, hand-carved uh, cliffs that go up uh, from the double track uh, main line there. I actually uh, had on my new layout a uh, a length of uh, a wall uh, and a spot on the on the layout that was longer than the original uh, scenic curve and the hand-carved uh, plaster stonework, and I ended up having to uh, make plaster and uh, rubber molds and then make new plaster rock work in the John Armstrong style. And uh, had that uh, hand painted by the wife of a fellow that was working with me on the layout. I also have Essex Junction. Uh, those three pieces are all. That's where the. Uh, no, that's not where where the Pointer Rock station was on his layout. That's also That area, although not the station itself, is also on the layout. Uh, as is Essex Junction. Some of them have been moved into different configurations than they were in order to fit into my. Uh, layout, but they're all there. I also have the two, uh, two long sections of the main line, uh, that went up the grade. I'm trying to remember what the top of well, what that grade was called. Uh, but the lay, the uh, main lines are actually separated. They're still sitting in the sunroom on the first floor of my house rather than in the basic, uh, basement because I haven't figured out a way to fit them into the uh, layout yet. Uh, a, a significant prize will be offered to anybody that can figure out how they fit.
0: Well, you know, it's it's. Uh, I want to follow up on a couple of these things. The uh, the cosmetic curve, photographers' bend, slug island, whatever you want to call it, on on the way you have it now, was a a single uh, large radius curve. You've now extended that so that the whole is about twice the length it originally was. Yeah, it's but about, you've 40, also, about forty feet long now. But you've also bent. The other half of it back in the other way. So now it's a big cosmetic S curve, as I remember. So That's correct. You, you've introduced another wrinkle into that, uh, into that photographic opportunity. It's part of the challenge. And you, uh, you're modestly saying that, uh, it's sitting on, you have parts sitting on the floor of your sunroom, but there's actually a story with how the sunroom came to be in the first place. <laughs> the sunroom is there because of the layout itself, isn't it?
2: it? It is, and I have an ex-wife who would undoubtedly, uh, attest to that. Uh, yes, I, I the basement was originally 18 by 47 feet, and I acquired the Ted Stepic uh, layout with the idea of reconfiguring it. It had been in a, uh, a room almost completely square, uh, and uh, it was one of the layouts that, that John Armstrong designed and, and was featured in two of his books. It was actually one of his favorite layouts, and he liked it better than his own, he sometimes said. I reconfigured that to fit into a longer and, and somewhat narrower space. Uh, I had to relocate several of the pieces, but it basically fit together. Uh, it was a double track main line with with stacked uh, staging loops and the staging loops ended at the at the exterior wall uh, well at the exterior wall of the basement uh, and I vowed that if I enjoyed it found the uh, restoration to be satisfactory but found the size of the layout to be too small that I would consider doing a uh, uh, an extension on the house later at repay uh, layout became available. Uh, he moved shortly after the 2004 Scalo National Convention, uh, and I acquired his layout, uh, and I needed a place to put it. So I uh, dug out a, I had a contractor dig out uh, about 16 feet of crawl space out to the existing uh, footprint of the house, and then I had a 25 foot extension, so I acquired uh, Something like another 41, 42 feet, and I did it for the specific purpose of being able to to basically double the size of the uh, of the layout. Uh, after I did all of that, and I thought it was pretty clever, uh, John Armstrong uh, did pass away. His family was was very interested in having the layout preserved and be able to be operated by the same group of people. That had operated for so many years, and so I acquired the, uh, the layout basically as a donation, with the understanding that I would uh, would make it fit. Well, I ended up having to fit it around the peri- the, the scenes that I described uh, around the perimeter of the uh, of the room. The price that I pay is there's some very very narrow uh, aisles. Uh, probably 18 inches wide or so i don't recommend it it could be part of a uh, forced uh, weight reduction program that that uh, so many of us so scalers need uh, but that wasn't the original intent uh, but I, I did have to make compromises to make it fit but i wasn't about to uh, let it go out into the dumpster the way so many layouts uh, that
0: were built during those times uh So you are a living example of someone who built a basement and a house to cover it. (laughs) Yes, yes,
2: it it does. The uh, sunroom's chief function is to keep the rain off of the layout, and and I must confess that, that other than to attempt to appease the household gods, that was in fact its
0: primary purpose. And in your operating scheme for your railroad, the Canandaigua Southern still exists. It's, it's one of your connections, so it, it's still there. It does. Intact. I'm a, I'm a nickel plate modeler and,
2: and, uh, the layout now stretches. I, I've never figured out the exact number of square feet, but, but it takes about 40 minutes to get all the way around the layout. It's basically a double track main line. Uh, with, uh, staging loops at each end. So it looks like a dog bone, but you then take the dog bone and you twist it and turn it and make it into a multi-level layout. Uh, and at, uh, the Canada, the old Canandaigua yard, which I have now moved uh, in my concept to be Pittsburgh Junction, is the, where the nickel plate connects, uh, outside of Pittsburgh with the Canandaigua Southern. So everything from Canandaigua on around that part of the layout is, uh, is Canandaigua Southern with nickel plate trackage rights. Uh, and everything on the other side of, of Canandaigua is, is nickel plate,
0: uh, itself. And you've picked up a number of John's locomotives. And, uh, they, John's railroad, and you can look and see in the pictures if you look very closely, was outside third rail. So with part of his railroad and some of his equipment, that brought along problems of its own. You want to go into speaking of some well, of that? Well,
2: it's, it's a, it's a subject that gets ugly at times, but I guess I would caution anyone who, who decides that they want to consider, uh, uh, restoring somebody else's older layout these older layouts were not only built to different uh, tolerances in terms of flange ways and, and uh, uh, the gap between points on switches and uh, the, uh, f- the uh, wheels, uh, width and, and depth that have uh, varied from over a period of time, um, but when you go to DCC, uh, you need powered points, you need appropriate gaps, uh, and uh, the layouts were never really designed for that. Uh, for example, John's layout being outside third rail as it was, all of the two rail track was one, basically one electrical circuit. There basically were no gaps. Uh, and so I had to gap all of the track and power all of the points. Uh, and although it has worked out reasonably well, Uh, uh, steel rail is not necessarily the best material to use if you want DCC which tends to be very sensitive to uh, uh, oxidation and conductivity but, and all three of the layouts were built in in different eras and to somewhat different tolerances Stepix was built in the uh, 60's Uh, John Armstrong's layout was actually started in 1950 and was largely complete by about 1960. And then uh, Ed Rappé's layout was built in the, uh, I guess, late 70s through the mid-80s. Not only did the the track tolerances uh, change uh, over time, uh, although they were nominally built the same minimum radius, uh, but the wheels and flanges uh, that are, are used also varied over time. So I was trying to fit three different eras uh, of track uh, and wiring uh, as well as uh, the entire range of wheels uh, and other standards that uh, have been used on the cars of the era. And it took a lot of time to make everything stay on the track. It's now reasonably reliable, but it's been a painful process.
0: I think it's... Based on, on the clinic you gave yesterday, I think it's fair to characterize this, that this was more a labor of love rather than uh, a financial uh, decision. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah,
2: I, I, for, for if, if you want to save one of these old layouts, you can certainly save some time on components of the layout that are uh, time-intensive. For example, uh, uh, working... Turntable and engine servicing facility takes a lot of time. If you can use one that already exists, you may save yourself time. But there are clearly costs not only in removing the layout, uh, moving it to its new location, installing it there, adapting uh, the track plan, updating the uh, wiring, uh, making the uh, track uh, conform with present standards. Uh, and so you end up, you end up costing yourself both time and money in order to make it fit. Uh, the equation might turn out to be a wash. I suspect I'm probably time and money behind. But, uh, the guys like John Armstrong and, and Ted Stepick, uh, in particular, and other people who are from that generation, uh, were just wonderful guys. They made the hobby what it is, uh, today. They provided us with great examples uh, of uh, not only their craftsmanship, but they were the people that we learned from. Uh, and that model railroad community uh, is the real reason that I'm in the hobby, at least. It's not really a matter of the hardware, the engines, and the, and the track, and the structures, and the scenery, uh, so much as it is the people. And I wanted to make sure that uh, the contributions that these guys made uh, did not uh, get lost. The fellows who had operated the layouts before uh, wanted the opportunity to continue to operate those components. They're comfortable, sort of like an old shoe, I guess. Uh, And uh, I've gotten a lot of satisfaction out of the work that I've done. People literally have come from all over the world. Uh, Last week, uh, uh, a couple from Japan uh, came to see the layout. I've had people from New Zealand and uh, Algeria, France, uh, England, and from all over the United States and Canada. And they are all appreciative that, that these layouts, unlike a lot of the layouts from that era, have been preserved and not gone into the dumpster. And it is clearly not for everybody, it is clearly not for every layout, but for those uh, where there is a sufficient motivation, where the level of craftsmanship or sentiment is particularly high, it is certainly something that I would urge people to uh, consider, but you'd be doing it for the satisfaction of the people rather than the time and money savings that might be involved.
0: Well, I have to count myself in amongst the people who have benefited because... I moved to Virginia too late to have known John Armstrong or operated with on his layout or any other layouts in the group at that time. Uh, as a matter of fact, I saw John Armstrong's layout for the first time in uh, conjunction with the 2004 O-Scale National and John had actually entered the hospital at that point. Yes. He wasn't even physically there and that was the first and only time I saw his layout installed in its original Location. So now I've actually had a chance to operate on it because of what you've done. Well, I'm I'm glad. I that that is a very satisfying uh,
2: testimonial. Uh, and and the fact that his layout was able to operate in 2004 is only because a lot of fellows pitched in and did right. a lot of work because it it was it was. He was probably on life support at that point, but the layout had been on life support for several years, and, and that's the, just an unfortunate consequence of, of, you know, the fellows that build large layouts and then have diminished uh, energy and, and uh, abilities as they as they get older. But I'm, I'm delighted to have been able to save it. I'm delighted that people like you have had the chance to uh, operate it and, and sort of share. Uh, at least indirectly in the, in the things that John did and I'm delighted that so many people have gotten to come over and uh, and and see it and participate in that it's it's my little contribution to the hobby any final thoughts no uh, it's you know this is this is a great hobby as I said it's a great hobby because of the people uh, and uh, i'm I'm happy to be a part of it uh, I, I This is a hobby where the old design of having model railroad clubs and a retail hobby shop in the neighborhood uh, is is probably uh, going out of style. The kind of round-robin clubs that we have where you get an opportunity to participate in a group, uh, to see and work on different people's layouts and to run them, uh, I think that's still a, a, a good way to go, and I would urge people to you know, cluster together, circle the wagons, form groups, uh, and, and share with each other. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Terry.
0: Well, you never know who you're going to run into at an O-scale convention, and I have with me right now Tony Custer. How are you today, Tony?
5: I'm doing great. Glad to be here.
0: Um, since I didn't expect to see you here, I'm going to just ask you one simple question. What's happening that's of interest at the NMRA?
5: Well, I should explain what I'm doing here as well. Uh, I started out in Lionel O-Scale, um, at, well, really O-27, but uh, quickly graduated to building scale models. And if you look in the October 1970 Railroad Model Craftsman, back in the days when I was probably managing editor, uh, I built a super detailed old-scale All-Nation Ontario and Western F3. And it had the front door that swung open and LED or uh, fiber optics for the headlight and things like that. And uh, unfortunately, my Nikon camera was so good that when I shot a truss plate, uh, you could actually read all the data on it, and it showed that, uh, if you read real carefully, that it was an ONWFT truss plate, <laughs> not an F3. I've, I've built several old-scale models. I participate uh, in regular op sessions on John Rogers' uh, Sandy River and Rangeley Lakes, which is ON2, but he also has uh, a segment of the main central that interchanged with the uh, Sandy River at Farmington, uh, Maine. So O-Scale is not very far away from me at any given time. Now, to your question on the NMRA, uh, next week uh, we're uh, having our national convention that starts in uh, late July this time instead of over the 4th of July, and uh, I'm delighted uh, that it's a little later in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I'm on the board of directors, and uh, we're dealing with a number of issues, just like everybody else is in this day and age, with... uh, Fortunately, our membership has been holding very steady over the years at uh, right over 19,000. So that's a very good news story, successful story. But on the other hand, you can't sit on your laurels. And if you're standing still, uh, it's like money with inflation. You're really moving backwards. So uh, we've done a number of things. We have a new logo uh, to emphasize the brand. Uh, The magazine's name now, NMRA Magazine, emphasizes our brand. Uh, we're naming conventions to emphasize the brand, such as NMRA Atlanta 2013. So we're slowly evolving over into those uh, various directions. One of the newest things at the NMRA is NMRA Net, which is a uh, part of the DCC world, but it, it, uh, is really a protocol that lets you have some commonality for controlling everything but the train. And I'm not the, the guy to give you a rundown on NMRA net by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it's good that that things are standardized, and I think DCC alone is a testimonial to the fact that uh, the NMRA still has a relevant position in the hobby, and we hope that a number of uh, uh, folks in all scales will will join the NMRA or, or renew their memberships. One of the biggest problems in the hobby today that the magazines face, the NMRA faces, I'm sure the old scale group and other scale groups face, is the so-called balkanization of the hobby. And uh, united, we stand divided, we fall. Uh, You have to be careful. You know, we hear things that if it's not N-scale and it's not 1955 and it's not Union Pacific, I'm not interested. And that's a very dangerous attitude to have because pretty soon you belong to the 1955 Union Pacific N-scale club and that's it. And there's not enough of those people, even with a great railroad like the UP, to support something on the scale of a national organization or a national magazine of any size that has real weight and influence with advertisers and, and uh, the hobby industry as a whole, model railroad industry as a whole. So we're very concerned that people are getting a little too picky in what they do and what they want to do, and they ignore everything that doesn't have their label on it And that's going to hurt us in the long run, Terry.
0: Yeah, and and actually we uh, had a clinic or a seminar last night about the future of the O-scale hobby. And uh, all the concerns that we've discussed on Model Rail Radio were expressed in this uh, clinic. How do you bring young people into the hobby? Uh, O-scale suffers additionally because we're, we're balkanized within the scale and gauge.
5: That's right. We
0: have 2-rail, 3-rail, we have Proto 48, and, and it's, it's very insular uh, in that the 2-railers and 3-railers are, are almost worlds apart, yep. and the Proto 48 guys are, are, are also off by themselves. Uh, pushing for everyone to convert to Proto 48, and while I appreciate their enthusiasm, that's a very large user base to suddenly swap gauges and uh, like like the American Railroads after civil <laughs> after the Civil War. How how do you, how do you address the balkanization? How do you how do you find common ground with everyone?
5: I think Neil Shore has set an example in Pittsburgh. Uh, Neil's a doctor and and is uh, modeling the Pensy, and. And except for the fact that the track is high rail, uh, however you define that, everything else is done to very high standards of scale. Now, I'm not saying that if you're not scale, you don't have high standards at all. I'm just saying that Neil has adopted everything from the grade profile or the uh, cross-section of the roadbed profile to uh, even work with weaver, as I understand, to do... uh, Standard pensy, uh telephone, telegraph poles, and all this kind of thing. So Neil is showing that there's a uh, a good middle ground, and we featured his railroad in Model Railroad Planning, which I edit for Kalmbach, to make the point that there is a middle ground. And it's, that's probably a bridge that we can all capitalize on. Uh, years ago, I remember when I was in 027 and then segueing into O-Scale, that uh, you could actually take some of the better, uh, quote unquote toy train stuff and put real, put scale trucks underneath it, scale couplers and, and, uh, so there's some commonality in that regard. I gave, uh, the, uh, banquet address at the S-Scale National Convention in Duluth a couple of years ago, National Association of s And I told them that, uh, in my view, and what do I know, but in my view, that the idea of saying that that S-Scale has what everybody else has and we're one of you, etc., is probably not the best marketing ploy for them because I think one of the real attractions of S-Scale is that it is not mainstream. And that may have an appeal for O-scalers as well that uh, are all gaugers. Let's broaden it a bit. Show the differences. There's some, uh, I mean, HO didn't come out on top for no good reason at all. O-Scale, you know, originally not scale, uh, had a head start and HO was half naught or half O, and uh, yet for some reason HO came on top. That's the way it is. I mean, there's nothing that's going to change that material. N scale is doing well, but they're not in any way, shape, or form, uh, knocking HO off its, uh, high horse. So to me, I would look at the things that, that each scale and gauge offer. And uh, I would set up marketing campaigns and uh, sales programs based on uniqueness rather than commonality. So in some cases, uniqueness is, is good, not bad.
0: You mentioned before that there's a balkanization even in era and and the equipment. Right. So taking it, making it broader, applying H-O-N as well as that, how do you, you know, do you find that the the thrust nowadays for very time and detail specific models is causing that balkanization? When someone can go and, and say, "Look, I I won't take an app blue box boxcar anymore. I want uh, an exact model that represents a certain narrow range in time and with." uh railroad specific details otherwise i'm not buying and therefore the hobby shrinks as a
5: result that's a very interesting point and in, in question there's actually two pieces of this one of them is this in more intense focus on on accuracy let's call it and the other one is the the ready to run uh, ready build etc and those two overlap because the ready-to-run market has allowed something that, that I've espoused forever, and that is that to employ the stuff as realistically as it looks. And so that means that uh, that if I have a perfectly detailed Nickel Plate Road caboose, I'm only going so, so far up the whole spectrum of, of realism, because unless that caboose is used in the same, with the same degree of realism, then I'm not fully amortizing my investment in it. It's it's only partially amortized. Now we get into how do you get that accuracy of detail. And if a manufacturer, uh, whether it's Overland is a brass nickel plate caboose or it's uh, plastic and we don't have uh, all of the cabooses in plastic, but Atlas, for example, has done the uh, design that the Wheeling Lake Erie pioneered, the nickel plate 700 series caboose, and they've done a pretty nice job of it. Unfortunately, the division of the nickel plate I model from uh, central Indiana to St. Louis didn't use those cabooses. So here we go. Here's a manufacturer that's invested uh, in time and effort and especially in money, uh, even more especially in risk of money, of capital, uh, to come out with a beautifully done nickel plate caboose. And as a result of that, the... Uh, Bottom line is that the model is not something that I'll buy, except maybe as a stand-in. So, now what do you do? How do you deal with this? Uh, I hope they'll come out with a thousand series caboose that is on my division. But in the meantime, Nickel Plate Products, Overland, and uh, Division Point all did it in brass. So, at least hobby dollars are being spent in the hobby industry. The the problem with this accuracy in blue box is not as widespread as most people think because most modelers are not really fastidious scale modelers. They just aren't. One of my good friends, uh, Dick Yeager, who runs Oregon Rail Supply, they manufacture signals and some other related products. Dick used to run a hobby shop, and he said that every magazine editor should be required by law to work in hobby shops for six months to a year to really meet who our customers are. And I know I hear the same thing uh, relative to Kalmbach publications. I'm a contractor. I'm not an employee, so I don't speak for Kalmbach publications. But I can tell you what I hear, and that is that uh, some people will say the magazine is not for the serious-scale modeler anymore, that it's catering more to the beginner, Uh, MR runs a lot of project railroads, etc., Uh, Those people are not naive. They are very astute, long-term professional business people, and they're responsible primarily to the corporation and to the corporation's stockholders, which are the employees, and they know what works and what doesn't work. And if they're doing something, you will probably want to ask yourself whether, and you disagree with it, you might ask yourself whether you're the one that's on the fringe or whether they are, and, and since they're by far... Uh, margin of 2 or 3 to 1, maybe 4 to 1, the largest model railroad magazine, it follows that they are keeping their finger pretty accurately on the pulse of the hobby. And uh, they feel that the really serious gung-ho modelers, particularly those of us who operate as realistically as our models look, are probably below the 20% mark of the mar- market you could argue down to 15 percent, perhaps i i don't think those numbers are are as specific as they might seem but the point is still there that uh, that if you had atherin blue boxes and you had them for sale at a train show for two three four bucks a piece which is probably what you paid for them my guess is they'd be gobbled right up
0: now you raise a very interesting issue with People's accusation that Model Rare Weather is now a magazine for beginners, which is a good segue into part of the discussion which is, was had last night, is how do we get beginners into the hobby? And I know you've been asked this a million times. <laughs> With the disappearance of things like an in blue box, even here at the O-Scale National, was brought up, you know, you're getting HO cars now at 30 and 40 and $50. That's right. How do you get a a beginner into the hobby or your train set has disappeared. One of my hot buttons is you no longer see trains in the mass merchandises. You have to almost now seek out a specialty shop to find them and and the quality may not be there in your uh, Christmas time train set. How how do we resolve this conundrum? What's the NMRA doing?
5: The NMRA is scratching its head like everybody else is, but uh Uh, since I'm on the board of directors, they hear from me very regularly on this very point. We have a strong program with scouts. We have some programs with schools. But quite honestly, I think the noise-to-signal ratio with kids is too high for it. Not only the NMRA or any one magazine or manufacturer, but the entire model railroad industry, and for that matter, the entire hobby industry, it is very difficult for us to penetrate that. So what do we do? Throw up our hands? No, I don't think so at all. I think the future of the hobby lies in boomers. Uh, we've got a lot of people who are retiring or have just retired, and uh, they're doing several things. Uh, they're probably moving to uh, another home, but uh, not necessarily a smaller one, believe it or not. Uh, people like uh, Bruce Chubb retired and built an even bigger home for a bigger version of the Sunset Valley and, and other railroads in the Portland area. And if we can get the boomers involved... Uh, in the hobby, they remember trains, both big and little ones. They made a, might have had a, a Lionel or American Flyer set as a kid. might even been age or Their dad did. And so they remember trains fondly. They're not having to just draw on what they see and hear today. Same thing uh, in terms of their grandchildren and their children, and that is that uh, if Grandpa has a big model railroad in the basement or the garage or the attic or even a spare room, they're very likely to follow grandpa's example now we have four children two boys and two girls and none of them picked up on scale model rail running at all although one of my sons came in and said you know if we'd had dcc with that kind of sound both steam and diesel when i had the allegheny midland running i did have dinatrol steam sound but no bells no whistles literally no diesel sounds he said i might have been interested in the hobby and his son who's now 13 my grandson Is rapidly into scale model railroading. He recently segued from a toy train set into scale model railroading. He is running DCC with uh, sound decoders. He's going to soon have radio throttles rather than tethered throttles. So this shows you a direct path from the millions and millions of boomers who all we need to do is pick up 1% or a half a percent of them. And then once we have those people, uh, we can segue over to their children and their children's children the the 64 dollar question 64 million dollar question probably is how do you get to baby boomers and the only way that that i've seen that you can identify them easily is through aarp and aarp prints a magazine called aarp the magazine recent issues have said the world's largest circulation magazine well I suspect that's true, but even if it isn't, they think it is, and that means that their advertising rates are among the world's largest, highest. And I'm not even sure the hobby industry as a whole can afford uh, to run ads, let alone the model railroad industry, let alone any individual manufacturer, publisher, or even coalition. So it's not as easy as saying, okay, we'll go get baby boomers, but I think that's really the direction we need to head in.
0: Well, part of the discussion last night at the, uh, at the, the, the clinic on uh, Future of O-Scale was that the world's greatest hobby when it comes to town spends between the, what they said was thirty to 80000 in advertising. Is that enough to maybe forego one show one year and run some ads in the AARP magazine?
5: I don't know what the ad rates are. I don't have a rate card. Uh, interesting idea though one thing that is for sure is the world's greatest hobby was a uh, very important initiative that some of the leading manufacturers and publishers took on and uh, they they have very big shows i've heard numbers quoted as 20,000 attendees you take that with a slight grain of salt not because it's inaccurate i'm sure it is accurate but because there's moms and little kids and and people that are just sort of interested in watching little choo-choo's run. Whereas if you come to an O-scale convention, an NMRE convention, with a national train show, the uh, narrow-gauge national convention that's in Seattle in September, uh, in Bellevue, I believe, near Seattle, and I'll be there giving a clinic, those guys come loaded for bear, you know. But part of that is because with O-scale, S-scale, narrow-gauge And with the number of hobby shops falling, there's no question the brick-and-mortar shops are fewer and farther between, and that's a real issue for everybody. can't just replace that with online, and and we'll get to online in a minute. But uh bottom line there is that uh, you can't just walk into a hobby shop and get every last detail you need to detail an old-scale boxcar. You might do better with a show, might but the po- the point is that you come to these conventions with your wallet fat and you go home loaded with uh, all the goodies you need, maybe for an entire year yeah. of skill model railroading.
0: Yes, you do. Let's get back to, uh, to the Internet. It seems to me that the Internet may be hurting us in a number of ways. You mentioned online sales. But it also occurs to me that uh, with all the available Internet material out there, it may be making armchair railroading a very comfortable pursuit, and it's going to be harder to pry yourself out of that armchair. And I'm as guilty as anyone else by putting out a blog. Uh, I hear people you know, read my blog, and it's, it's sometimes hard to tear yourself away from the computer while you're pursuing model railroading.
5: It really is. Uh, the, the Internet, and more so the web, has just opened up. Two huge worlds to us. The first world is that so much information is available, either through chat groups that are aimed at, for example, not, not just DCC, but a specific manufacturer of DCC. So you can go and get most of your problems resolved. The problem is, as I discovered when I bought a DCC set and I joined that particular manufacturer's uh, okay. chat group, uh, after a week or so, I knew everything I needed to know about that particular uh brand of DCC and any potential issues it might have and the stuff is essentially foolproof very seldom does something goes wrong and when it does go wrong you can usually get a quick answer from somebody if you're smart you'll buy the same brand of DCC that the other guys and gals in the neighborhood have and you share parts and you share uh, war stories and all that kind of thing and uh, if not you can jump online and go to that group but where, where you cross the line is when you you don't use those groups for specific information, but rather as a social medium. And uh, the phone I got, my, I got a, you know, disclaimer, the telephone I have in my pocket does not have apps on it. It does not have a GPS map. It doesn't have an HO scale rule. Um, I shut off the texting feature because I really don't need to know even what my grandchildren are doing minute by minute. I have things to do with my life. So it's a telephone and I prefer it be a diode telephone. And that is that the calls go only outbound for me (laughs) because everything gets in your face and starts bothering you after a while. And, but how are we going to stop that? I don't think we can. You go to a movie and people are texting, you driving, people are texting the ultimate idiocy and, uh. You know, I'm, I'm hoping some of this will be a little bit faddish, and, and uh, we'll get back to nuts and bolts. And I think that, well, the NMRA, for starters, I think is doing an excellent job with our clinic program. Um, we're at our board of directors meeting. We're hearing from the Michiana Division of the Midwest region, which is in northeast Indiana, southwest Michigan. And they have a program uh, that we're going to hear about where it's kind of a package set of clinics. But one of the things Michiana does is, for example, if you go to one of their division meetings and it's about weathering a freight car, you don't have some hack like me standing up with PowerPoint slides telling you how to weather it. Instead, you bring a freight car or you give them 15 bucks for a freight car kit or something that manufacturers often help defer the cost of. And when you go home that evening, you have a weathered freight car. And and one of the big names in, in weathering these days is Pan Pastels. Uh, color fin you can google pan pastels and learn more about it and uh it's like a chalk but it goes on and sticks and you don't have to seal it or anything like that and so you go there and you not only come home with a weathered freight car but you learn about weathering chalks and pan pastels and about uh, diluted oils and diluted poly scale paints and things like that the various water-based paints so it's really hands-on and and there are some commercial enterprises that are doing things like this as well so i think i think we're close to having a lot of the pieces in place to uh, to reach out to people the hard part is like with ARP and boomers is is how do you reach out to them if you don't have a hobby shop in town to right. put a poster up that's the hard yeah. part
0: exactly you know um Throughout my life, when people hear I'm a model railroader, one of the things they say is, how do you do all of that? They've seen a cover of Model Railroader magazine at (laughs) some point, and they say, how do you build all that miniature stuff? I could never do that. And how do we get, I mean, Ready to Run, I think, has a place in getting people into the hobby. They can take it out of the box, put it on the tracks, and that's one thing they don't have to worry about building. But you've touched on just now how a skills building how do, we, how do we build skills? Can the NMRA bring these sorts of clinics to conventions like the O-Scale National, like uh, Springfield, say?
5: Well, there are some already. I know uh, Miles Hale and John Lawrence and Fran Hale give talks up at Springfield on a whole variety of topics. And they have a, a company called Model Railroad University, at least I think it's close to a name like that, we also have at NMRA Conventions a program called Modeling with the Masters. And master model railroaders such as uh, Clark Kooning run this. And it's got a limited number of people, like a 100 or something, that can attend. And it's not free. You've got to pay extra to do this. But here you are learning from people that have gone through the trouble and jumped through the hoops to qualify as master model railroaders. That doesn't mean they're a better modeler than anybody else. It means that they've taken the time to get certified in all of these various skills. And to do that, you not only have to be an association volunteer or an author or an uh, NMRI an, uh, official, the, the political and the writing side, but then you have to have it in skill sets like model railroad engineer, or electrical engineer, or chief dispatcher. Even there, you have to go on to locomotives and or cars and qualify in those areas. And, and I believe the locomotive requirement is that you scratch-build a locomotive. Now, this doesn't mean you have to scratch-build a Blomberg truck, but it does mean that uh, you can do something pretty simple. You could do a gas electric, or you could do a, a small gas mechanical model or something like that in the in the car area. That's kind of a fun area to do, and, and I, I'd like to double back to a comment that uh, I made about model railroader. You don't want to sell them short as being a beginner's magazine, and certainly not railroad model craftsman either for example, an article in MR a couple of years ago was how to scratch build an ON3 wood combine. Now that's pretty sophisticated. So that shows that that the commercial press is not ignoring this aspect of the hobby. They're not just saying, well, Andy Sprandio had a great article about uh, a ready-to-run boxcar in four hours. And you go, what? I thought they were ready to run. But Andy pointed out that since you've spent your 30 or 40 bucks on this thing, rather than just plunk it on the railroad and it disappears into the inventory on the railroad, give it some TLC and weather the car, look at some specific details, do some things to it that makes it special. This is one of the huge advantages that old uh, modelers have always had, is that, uh, for example, back in 1970 or so, I scratch. I didn't scratch build, I built an all-nation Nickel Plate Road Pullman Standard boxcar kit. And right on the side it says Pullman Standard, Michigan City, Indiana. And that's where I went to high school. And uh, so this car, for a lot of reasons, Nickel Plate Road, uh, Michigan City, Indiana, Pullman Standard. I knew Bob Colson of All Nation. Uh, I'd built their F3 kit that started out as, I believe, a General Models and then before that an Atwater kit. So I knew some of the heritage as a hobby. This one boxcar that I still have was special. And that's something that doesn't happen on my HO Railroad. There are maybe six or eight hundred special cars, which means they aren't special at all. Now, maybe one or two of them are special, because I scratch build them, uh, et cetera. But I scratch built a nickel plate caboose when I was in college, and I won an NMRA blue ribbon uh, with it. So, and then I quit <laughs> entering contests with <laughs> my record. 100%. Well, at the top, right? <laughs> but uh, I need to get back into the into building for contests, not because I need to get on an Eagle trip and win contests. Frankly, uh, after all these years editing a magazine and with people, with with the model railroad community being so kind to magazine editors, I mean, sure, they bust their chops when things go wrong, but they're so hospitable if we come to a city and things like that, that, that any Eagle trip you need has certainly been assuaged by something like that. So I would build it strictly to have the expert judges box my ears, if you will, to say, well, TK, nice job, but you could have done this, you could have done that. Oh, really? Never even thought about that. Uh, It's a learning process. So every aspect of what we're doing in the NMRA, we're trying to teach people. And, of course, it's very easy to be very negative and say, nah, the NMRA is a bunch of political hacks. Uh, Frankly, the political hacks are the people that, that set up the conventions and, and do all the background work that lets you come play trains. Mm-hmm. So don't disparage them too much. They're, uh, they're an important part of the hobby, but it's only, a, or at least the association, but there's so much more to the various organizations that if you don't belong, which people have an increasing tendency not to do, um, it, it's a shame. You ought to support your local merchant, <laughs> so to speak.
0: You know with your comment about the special box car, you touched on on something, could it be possible for uh, NMRA, either at one of the world's greatest hobby shows or Springfield or something that has a large attendance by the general public? Basically collect a, bu- a bunch of blue box kits. Invite you know a parent and child. so you have to be linked, both a parent and child to come and in an hour or two hours assemble an atherin blue box because i would think that if a a child leaves with his special box yep. car or his special freight car uh he's going to be looking to pursue this hobby because he made this with his own hands he's going to go around to all of his friends and say i built this okay yep. uh, and if you sprinkle in a few door prizes of a locomotive or a power pack you know he's halfway there
5: yeah, I think that's a good idea. And some of that actually is going on now. Companies, uh, Accurail comes to mind, Bob Walker and Dennis Storzik uh, in the Chicago area. They have donated kits to, uh, I don't know that they were aimed at kids necessarily, but at people who were intimidated. And they were smart enough to know that their kits are pretty easy to buy and uh, build and not that expensive to buy. They also have the ready-to-run, AccuReady, I think they call it, but they all have AccuRail kits. And uh, they know that if they can just get you to try one, mm-hmm. then you'll be a customer. And uh, I'm as guilty as anybody else of not, uh, of recently buying a lot of ready-to-run stuff. Because I've got a big railroad and I need a lot of actors, so to speak, all these cars. But very recently, I... I suddenly realized that the Neal Gravel Company in my hometown of Cuba, Indiana, was never there were never any cars built to that siding. And I thought, well, what would they have loaded gravel in? And I thought, well, it's probably, probably gondolas. So I started looking for 40-foot gonds on the railroad and discovered there weren't very many of them at all. And then I looked at my world's largest hobby shop that we all have in our basement somewhere, you know, stacks of stuff. And there was this ton of Accurail, Gondola kits, 40 foot gone, steel gonds So I dug them out. How hard can these be to build? Boy was I surprised when I built that kit. It was a really well-detailed body shell. The weight goes on the inside and then it's covered with a false with a floor. So you don't even see the weight. You flip the bottom over and install a few simple brake gear parts, just like on the older Accurail kits that have a half-round lug that goes in that you can't possibly screw up where they go or even the direction that you put them in. But then I found that they included all the brake rodding and stuff as a, an engineering plastic part, and it just popped right in. You had to use CA, you know, uh, ac- uh, Sino-Accolate cement to to attach it because it's not styrene. But then I found that the brake gear on the end was this stuff, the brake wheel on that part. But then I found that the steps were also made of this stuff, and they they slid into little slots in the end. So by the time you get the kit done, you weren't replacing broken steps already as you flipped it over back and forth. So here is something that uh, made kit building a joy, and I built 9 or to 12 of those things in one evening. And then I used this pan-pastel stuff with the, I used the charcoal over the black side to kind of gray the sides a little bit, and I used a uh, a rust and, and a darker rust color on the inside, just wiping it on with these foam brushes. They're like women's makeup kits. Um, and I had these gorgeous-looking cars, and maybe an hour a car. So, you know, yeah, we, we need to bring those to the people to show them, hey, kid, this isn't hard. Right. And, and people like Accurail are actually helping us. We don't have to just go find old antique blue box yeah. kits anymore at all.
0: Well, see, to my mind, you know, if, if you get a parent and child involved, it's a twofer.
5: Yeah, it you, is. You
0: could hook the child, you could hook the parent, you could hook them both, and you could start a uh, uh, a long-term hobby for one or both of them. And, and especially I see a lot of single mothers bring their children to Springfield that's right looking to get them involved in something which will keep them off the streets and be creative and spark their imagination and it seems like this would be a uh a fertile demographic to go after
5: i think you're right and and there's another issue here that you raise that uh, my daughter-in-law is an excellent example of this uh, and that is if you don't have a parent buy in A hobby, I don't care what hobby it is, has got a cost factor to it. And, uh, Sarah has been a real champ in taking, uh, grandson Jordan down to a place that installs decoders. And, you know, a tsunami decoder is pretty close to a hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. And then you gotta install it and stuff like that. And that's probably not something the kid's gonna be doing right out of the box and it's something I'm happy to job out because i got a lot of railroad to build, and the last thing I need to do is spend a whole day installing a couple of decoders and speakers and all that stuff solve it the American way by throwing money at it. But everybody's got a limited budget, and so you have to pick your battles carefully, but if your mom or your dad or both of them are on board with the hobby, uh, it's going to be a lot easier to make some progress because they're not going to look at at every dime that you spend on a set of KD couplers or something is, uh, oh, my gosh, what's this kid doing with his paper-out money?
0: Well, as a wrap-up question, because I can't keep you all day, I'd like to, but I can't, <laughs> I can't do that, especially since I'm probably running out of battery power here. Me too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's your take on the future of the hobby?
5: Well, it, it's it's very optimistic because I see a lot of young people involved but I don't see them outlining the number of uh, gray and bald heads that uh, I encounter. And for that reason, the, uh, the bottom line is that uh, I think that uh, the future of the hobby lies primarily in one of two areas. One of them is easily defined, and that's attracting boomers. The other one is the magic bullet, something that we don't know anything about. I mean, we didn't know. I worked uh, for Bell Laboratories, and we didn't know about the Internet's potential at all. Um we had some predictions. I mean, our concern was traffic over telephone lines. And we had all these predictive algorithms that would show what would happen and how long it take to get a dial tone in an emergency. And if you don't get a dial tone, then you try again, and that's like two calls instead of one. So there's all these things that happen. Nobody figured out that Grandpa and Grandma wanted pictures of the kids over the net. Nobody saw that one coming. And... Uh, that could be the case with model railroading. We worry about things like uh, well, like trains, T-R-A-I-N-Z, uh, which is a software simulation. It's not a layout design tool, but it's a simulator. You create your railroad in there, whether or not you're going to build it or have built it, and then you run it. Um, is that model railroading? I don't know. Does that lead to model railroading? I don't know. Uh, but but there could be something like that that's coming down the line that will suddenly make model building uh a little bit more in vogue, but uh, it has all of our undivided attention, whether you're talking about me with my model railroad or model railroad planning hat on or me with my NMRI director hat on or me with my average model railroad hat on. Uh, if, if the hobby doesn't exist, then I can't get my stuff, and I want to get my stuff, so we're in there fighting. Thank you very much, Doug. Pleasure, Terry.
0: Thanks.